there will be doubtlessly a number of things that want to distract you this morning. Satan's going to try to distract you from the gospel. He's going to try to distract you from this picture we're going to look at in just a few minutes of Jesus, which is so overwhelmingly beautiful that it should change who we are. And so I just want to say right at the beginning of this sermon, and I want to pray in just a second, right at the get-go, that we would not be distracted. That our Heavenly Father would protect us, protect our attention, so that we catch this vision of our Savior Jesus Christ here in Luke chapter 19. So, having said that, I'm going to invite you right now to bow your heads with me and to pray. Heavenly Father, we are feeble. We are a feeble people. We run after all kinds of things. We set our sights on the wrong kinds of things. But this morning we're asking for you to stir up your Holy Spirit in us and to give us a singular vision of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and to transform us as we study your word together as a people. Lord, take the distractions out of the way. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, um, we're going to get a picture of the weeping king this morning. You're going to see what I mean as we read the text. I'll just say ahead of time, thank you to Benjamin, because I went into his office on Monday morning and I said, I'm supposed to preach I don't remember how many verses, but a bunch more than I have right here. And I say, can I just pare it down uh, to chapter 19, verse 41 to 44? And he said, sure. So he's going to do the heavy lifting next week. And I'm going to be lazy this week. But you're going to see why I wanted to be lazy. I want to be lazy so that I can be strong with this text. This is a great text and one that we need to, to see in full. Uh, in AD 66... A number of factors led to a Jewish rebellion against Rome. Uh, There were religious factors, there were political factors, there were financial factors. And while that rebellion in AD 66 was initially successful, it led to the ruin of the holy city of Jerusalem in the end. In AD 70, the Romans got kicked out in AD 66, they came back in AD 70. Tens of thousands of Jews died either through starvation or at the hands of the Romans during the siege of Jerusalem. And this is how the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus describes that horrible event. Throughout the city, people were dying of hunger in large numbers and enduring unspeakable sufferings. In every house, the merest hint of food sparked violence, and close relatives fell to blows, snatching from one another the pitiful supports of life. No respect was paid even to the dying. The ruffians searched them in case they were concealing food somewhere in their clothes or just pretending to be near death. 
need drove the starving to gnaw at anything. Refuse, which even animals would reject, was collected and turned into food. In the end, they were eating belts and shoes, and the leather stripped off their shields. Tufts of withered grass were devoured. Through violence, through this revolt against the Romans, the Jews thought that they could bring peace. Kick out our enemy, destroy our enemy, vanquish our enemy, and we will find peace. We will establish peace. And yet, in the end, they got nothing like the peace they imagined. They got more war, and they got destruction. And I'm sure there were Jews during that time who were praying sincerely to Yahweh, Uh, to provide peace through this revolt. But yet, Yahweh did not answer him in that way. Not through that war. Not through that revolt. That is not how he would bring peace. Three decades earlier, Jesus warned them that salvation wouldn't happen in such ways. That was not the way of peace. And that's today's text. That warning is in today's text. He prophetically weeps over Jerusalem's hardness of heart and spiritual blindness in the passage we're going to look at this morning. So let's read what Luke records of Christ's lament here. Chapter 19 of Luke, verse 41 through verse 44. I'm going to read it aloud. You read along silently with me, either in your Bible or on your phone or on the screen. On either side of me here in the sanctuary. Here's the word of God. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for it. As we dig into God's word, As we dig into this text, we are going to ask three questions of it. Three questions are going to guide our study of this passage. First question, what visitation is Jesus talking about? What visitation is he talking about here? Second, what peace is Jesus talking about? He has a peace in mind, but it's nothing like the peace that the Jews thought they could bring themselves 30-some years later. So what peace is Jesus talking about? And third, what you is Jesus talking about? And I will explain that more in the end. But there's a whole lot of you in this passage, and we want to understand that. So let's start with the first question. What visitation is Jesus talking about here? You see the visitation in verse 44. And we all know that visits can be good, and we all know that visits can be bad. 
If you get a visit from an old friend, that's good. If you get a visit from the IRS, that's probably bad for you and for your family. And the reason for the visit determines whether we will see it positively or whether we will see it negatively. Whether we will be excited by it or fearful of it. And the same is true of visitations from the Lord in the Bible. The reason uh, will determine how we feel about the visitation of the Lord that we receive. For example, there are there, there's a very positive sense of the Lord's visitation at the end of Genesis. I just got done with Genesis in my devotional Bible reading. And, and there in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph is speaking to his brothers before his death. And he says this about the visitation of the Lord. This is an overwhelmingly positive one he talks about. Chapter 50, verse 24 and 25. He says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. And bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones. In other words, I'm going to die, but you're going to bury me eventually in the promised land. This is a good visitation. We find the promise of a liberating visitation of the Lord to his people. So that he can lead them into their promised inheritance, right? A land flowing with milk and honey. It is a beautiful and good visitation of the Lord that's being spoken of there in Genesis 50. An overwhelmingly positive visitation for the people of God. In contrast, though, to this, we find another very different kind of visitation in the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah is looking at the enemies of God and a siege, in fact, on the city of Jerusalem. And he writes about this visit of the Lord upon the enemies of his people, the enemies that he has. Chapter 29 of Isaiah, verse 5 and 6. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise. With whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. That's bad. That's not the the kind of visitation you want from the Lord. So having seen how the kind of visitation you get and the Bible determines whether you're excited about it or fearful of it, we have to ask, what kind of visitation is Jesus talking about in our text? What is this visitation in chapter 19 of Luke all about? Is it a positive or a negative visit? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes. It's positive. Yes. It's negative. It's both. We see both here in this passage. In verse 44, Jesus laments over the fact that Jerusalem didn't know the time of the Lord's positive, life-giving visitation. It didn't receive him as its Messiah, the Savior. So in that sense, the visitation he speaks of is a good one that has been missed. But because it was missed, because Jerusalem didn't know its true king, didn't receive Christ as its true king, another type of visitation from God would come. 
And that one brought destruction and ruin on the city that rejected its king. That's the negative visit Jesus predicts in today's passage. The one that would ultimately take place in 70 AD. The judgment of God through Rome more than 30 years later. And this is how Jesus describes that negative visit. Verse 43 and 44 of today's passage. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. That event came to pass. This became part of the awful, terrible, tragic history of the city of Jerusalem. It's the history that Josephus would later record. And indeed, it is tragic. It's so sad. A positive visitation missed. A terrible visitation experienced. Let me pause, take a time out here for a second, because there is an apologetic note that I'd like to share with you. Some have been very critical of this passage. Maybe you are one of those people who look at this passage and it's just hard for you to really believe that Jesus some 30 plus years before the event of the destruction of Jerusalem could predict that. Well, many have thought that. Some will argue that Jesus couldn't have known this. They suggest that these verses must have been inserted following the devastation of Jerusalem in AD 70. And so what they basically argue is that some person living after that time period recorded those events and went back and put them on the lips of Jesus here standing before Jerusalem. In effect, what they say is that nobody sees into the future. Nobody can predict what's going to happen in the future. Miracles don't happen and therefore somebody must have inserted this into the passage after the fact because Jesus couldn't have predicted the destruction of Jerusalem as it occurred in 70 AD. That's impossible. But let me just suggest to you that that says a lot more about the critic than it does about the veracity of Scripture. You see, there's a presupposition there, the presupposition that God cannot be God. That miracles cannot take place. They don't take place. That no one prophetically sees into the future. And that presupposition changes everything for the person reading this passage. It colors their reading of the passage so that they, before they've even begun to study it, have already made up their minds about what can and can't happen in it. But let me say this, friends. If God exists, exists, if God is real, then couldn't he become a man and walk among us? If God is God, couldn't he have become the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal son existing in human flesh? Couldn't he do that? And if he were to do that, couldn't he heal people? Walk on water? See into the future prophetically. If God is God, that is. If God exists, could he not do those things? Or would the laws of nature rule God so that he couldn't do any of those things? The laws of nature that God created now rule over him. See, that's the presupposition that is being held over a text like today's text. And friends, again, 
He'd be an awful small God if he's ruled by the laws of nature. He'd be an awful small God if he couldn't do the kinds of things that this text suggests that he does, that the New Testament suggests that he does. He'd be the only kind of God that the critics of a passage like this one will ever find. A small g God. Really no God at all. So I just want you to recognize, we should all recognize that we have presuppositions. But that we have to hold those at arm's length. Come to the text and allow it to say what it says and then evaluate if God is God. Could he not do this? That's just an apologetic note. Maybe maybe that's helpful, maybe it's not. Let's get back, though, into the text. Time in, right? Time out, time in. Let's get back on the court and play. Before we move on, I want to point out something that is beautiful and convicting about this picture that we receive of Jesus here today in this passage. He weeps over the destruction of those who've rejected him. I mean, just let that sink in. In fact, the word weeping here, that's not strong enough. Wailing. Mourning loudly over this city. Filled with his enemies. Filled with those people who will not just reject him, but mock him and torture him and kill him. And he knows that full, full and well. And Jesus mourns for them. It's a touching snapshot of our Lord and it's one we must struggle to understand, allow it to sink in, and then to live out. This is a challenging picture of Jesus. It's one that challenges the way that we live if we are his followers. And the Apostle John tells us that as Christians we are to follow the example of our Lord. It's not gonna be on the screen, but in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, Here's what John says. Whoever says he abides in him, Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I wonder what implications does that have for us? If we're followers of Jesus, what implications does that have? How then should that that affect the way that we live? This picture, this beautiful weeping over a city of his enemies. What does it mean for us? What does the image of Jesus weeping over the ruin of his enemies mean for the way that we think about politics? How we engage in politics with people who have very different political views than we do. I wonder if you've ever wept over somebody that you oppose, politically speaking. Challenging. How should Christ's tender heart toward the people who would ridicule and torture and kill him change the way that we interact with that guy or that gal at work who is a real jerk to us. I wonder if you ever weep for those kinds of people who are always mean, rude, who are arrogant, who treat you poorly. Do you weep for them? In what ways should this picture of Jesus' sympathy change how we pray for those whose lifestyles are offensive to us? This is a challenging picture of our Lord and Savior. And if we really take it in, we will find that it stretches us. 
that it makes us think about how we fall short. And this is not supposed to be the case. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to image our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are to stretch ourselves. We are to weep for the lost. We are to weep for those people who are our enemies. This is not just a passage for Jesus. This is not just something Jesus does. This is something we are called to do as well. By the power of his Holy Spirit, through his work on our behalf, through his sacrifice, through his resurrection, we are to live this way must challenge how we treat those who oppose us. Well, we need to move on and figure out what kind of peace Jesus is talking about here. What's the nature of this peace which Jerusalem missed out on? Verse 42. Look again at verse 42 with me. Jesus says there, speaking to Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. A biblical understanding of peace, and thus a a Christian understanding of it, always begins with one's relationship to God. You start with this vertical relationship of God when you're talking about this biblical Christian understanding of peace. If you want peace with others, you must First, establish peace, and I'm talking about real peace, not a fake peace, but real peace. You have to first establish peace with God if you're going to have peace with others. The creator of all things, because we are his creatures. So without peace with God, we have really no peace at all. It's a necessary ingredient in true peace. Again, that's the Christian view. If you're a follower of Jesus, that should be your view of peace. You see, the proper theology of peace is never simply or merely theoretical. In fact, no true good theology is ever just theoretical. It's always practical. Knowing our God, knowing who he is, is always incredibly practical and experiential. Thus, when it comes to peace, we must first experience it in order to practice it. We must receive peace from our creator in order to truly extend it to our neighbor. Now, I want for a second to think back to the introduction. Remember back to what happened in 70 AD to Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem. Wasn't it? The pursuit of economic peace, political peace, religious peace through the defeat of the nation's enemies that they were, they were wanting. They, they wanted to find peace in those ways. Isn't that what they were striving for with that rebellion? And yet, what did it bring them in the end? Just more war, more destruction, more pain, less peace. In the end, it only brought them the opposite of what they were striving to find. And yet, what is Jesus doing in this passage, right? Consider the contrast between him and that future picture of Jerusalem that we had in the introduction. In this passage, Jesus stands with and before his enemies, those who will soon betray, mock, and kill him. Nonetheless, he weeps for them. But here is the important point. He's weeping for them, but he is not helpless. 
Jesus is not a victim as he stands there before Jerusalem. In fact, Jesus is in complete control. So if peace came through violence, through defeating your enemies, Jesus could have completely had peace in that way here. But that's not what makes for peace, according to Jesus, is it? He's God incarnate. He could judge his enemies in the blink of an eye, but he doesn't do that. He weeps over them in complete control. He weeps for his enemies. His enemies won't take his life from him. He lays it down by design. John chapter 10, verse 18. He lays it down because he chooses to lay his life down. He lays it down for his enemies. He lays it down for peace. What they think makes for peace couldn't be any more different than what actually makes for peace, according to Jesus. Do you see? Do you see the contrast? Jesus has arrived on Jerusalem's doorstep in order to offer his enemies peace with God, which is where peace must begin. The only place to find everlasting peace is in the forgiveness and the peace of Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe me, just think about it in terms of your own life. Your own experience. When you get that promotion which promises you real financial security, does it give you a lasting peace? Maybe you're like, well, I've not gotten that promotion, so I don't know. Well, look at others who have. Do you see peace there? When you fall in love, you get married. Does that special someone, that special relationship rescue you from feelings of loneliness and dissatisfaction? If you think it does, you don't know a thing about romance in this fallen world. When you finally have the position of honor, respect, prominence that you've always dreamed of having, you've always longed for, does it keep you from having feelings of insecurity? Does it keep you from having feelings of disrespect? The answer to all these questions is no. None of these things will bring you lasting and real peace. They cannot. They weren't created to. They can be good things, but they weren't created to be the ultimate thing. They can give you peace. The Bible tells us that only relationship with God can bring us real and lasting peace. I like the way that C.S. Lewis put it. In Mere Christianity, he said this, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. You need that relationship with your creator. You need peace with your creator which only comes through faith in Jesus Christ if you're ever going to extend peace horizontally into this world. If you're ever going to experience it in your own life or extend it to others, you must have peace with God. And so Jesus stands weeping for the city of Jerusalem because it does not know what makes for peace. The city does not know him and will not receive him as king and as savior and as God. It is missed It's visitation of peace. It's missed the prince of peace. It's blind to what makes for peace. Let's move finally to the question 
of you in this passage. And if that makes you feel uncomfortable, it should. What you is Jesus talking about here? Verse 42 to verse 44. As we read through the passage, I wonder if you heard the repetition of you. It's repeated over and over again. Beginning in verse 42, let me just, I'm going to emphasize. So just know that I don't think Jesus stood outside of Jerusalem and sounded like I'm about to read this passage. But I'm going to emphasize the you's so that they really sink in because you're supposed to hear the repetition of it, okay? So don't, Jesus was weeping. Jesus was soft and gentle and, and, and just heartbroken for Jerusalem. Just know that. But just listen to the you repetition, all right? Would that you, Jerusalem, even you had known the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. 11 times in three verses. You, 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 you. Now, at that time, standing before Jerusalem, without a doubt, Jesus was speaking to the city. You, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the you in this passage. But Jerusalem, undoubtedly, is a paradigm for how one receives or rejects God's Messiah. I mean, there's no doubt about it. If you had known the visitation and what makes for peace, if you had received me, but you didn't, you rejected me. Do you see? So in a sense, Jerusalem is a paradigm for all of us, anyone, everyone, as they confront Jesus or are confronted with Christ. And so it begs the question here, very personally, very intimately, it begs the question of you. How have you received Jesus? How have you rejected Jesus? That's a question that I think for sure Luke intended for you to ask yourself. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Recording what Jesus said there, he wants you to think about your reception or rejection of Christ. So we should end by asking ourselves, how have we received Christ? How have you received Christ? Now, you could think, I'm a believer, and so I've received him fully. That would be a shallow examination of self. Let's think more deeply than that. Is Jesus just a means to an end for you? Is he only welcome when he serves a purpose? But there are other areas of your life that he is not welcome in at all because he meddles there. You see, in one sense, you can receive Jesus. In another sense, you could be rejecting Jesus. Is Jesus simply a small s savior to you? Welcome when you need something from him, when you're in dire straits. Is that the kind of Jesus you have received? Is Jesus a convenient king to you? Convenient. 
convenient. Welcome to reign over all those areas in your life that you want to give to him. But there are other areas, inevitably, that you're going to hold over here and say, no, not there, Jesus. Not with my sexuality. Not with my money. Not with my children. Is that the kind of Jesus you've received? Friends, if this is how you welcome Jesus and you haven't welcomed Jesus as your full and true king. Now, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I am not necessarily saying that you're not a follower of Christ, but I am saying you have areas of unrepentant sin in your life, areas in which you have not given full kingship, full reception to Christ Jesus. And when you find such areas... The Bible tells us exactly what we should do. We should repent and turn away from it and invite Christ in as king. Knowing that as much as it may hurt us, it is what makes for peace. As much as it may be uncomfortable, it is what makes for peace. Real, lasting peace in every area of our lives. That's what's being offered here. Don't reject it. Know the time of your visitation. Allow the Spirit to visit you, convict you of sin, and then when you feel that conviction, repent. Turn away from it and ask for His power of healing and peace to reign in your lives. That is the promise of truth. Peace. That's the promise that only comes through the Prince of Peace. That's knowing God, knowing you're accepted by God through faith in Christ Jesus, and knowing that the sins that you have are forgiven in Christ Jesus. Even when you're holding on to them, turn them over. They're forgiven. You don't need to feel shame. You have the righteousness of Christ in you. You have the true peace of Christ in you. Let him reign over it all. I'll close with those words. Let me pray. Let me pray that we would not be a people reluctant to welcome Christ into every area of our lives. So will you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, you are so good. You are weeping over those areas in our lives right now that we are holding on to, that we are not welcoming you into. But you are loving and gentle. When we invite you in to our lives fully, you do bring us peace, forgiveness. And we ask that we would be a people who would trust that. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this tender picture, Heavenly Father, of your Son as he stands before your city and weeps. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.